So while you're opening to, to Luke chapter 22 uh, and looking at verse 31, you might notice in your bulletin there's two other scripture references. I'm going to read the Luke portion, and I'm going to ask that you follow along with me because that's the main part of our text this morning. But I am going to read the other two because they're going to shed light on what is happening uh, here at the Last Supper between Jesus and Simon Peter. So if you have your Bible open, we're at Luke 22. Hear now the reading of God's word. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then there's Romans 8, verse 34, which you heard from our assurance of pardon. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then in Hebrews 7, verse 25, the author says of Jesus, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful and beyond uh, even comprehension that you have saved us, that you care for us. And not only have you saved us with your son's sacrifice on the cross, but he is continuing to hold us in front of you, daily pleading on our behalf before you. Be with us, Father, as we look at this encouraging and powerful word that you uh, have given us in the recording in the Gospel of Luke. I ask that this word would touch our hearts, Lord, and that they would take us up into, us up into heavenly places. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so this is one of my favorite pieces of doctrine. And I didn't really learn about it until much later. When, when you come for ordination in our denomination, it, it's a grueling process, and, and they really kick you kind of when you're down at the very end of all these exams and, and uh, facts you've memorized in Scripture. They not only want you to uh, preach a sermon, they, they want you to write two papers, and one of them is a doctrinal theological paper, and you don't get to choose. And so when I was coming up for ordination, I had to write on the atonement. And as I'm doing the research and writing on you know, the theories of atonement, what the Bible says about atonement, what church history has said about atonement, one of the things that kept up that I never really thought about before was that the, the atonement is a once-and-done deal on the cross, right? We all take comfort in that. Christ is that perfect, unblemished Lamb of God sacrificed for you. 
And we don't believe that, like when we come, like we did a couple weeks ago for the Lord's Supper, we don't believe that he is somehow re-crucified or, or, you know, his work is being redone to him somehow. It's already been done. But the application of the atonement is continuing throughout the course of human history for each and every single one of you through Christ's intercession. His pleading and praying to God the Father, who he is right next to on your behalf. And he did that. He started doing that here on earth. And that's what we see in this text today. We've been going through this brief series on our way to the cross and to the resurrection next Sunday. And we've been seeing what was happening in Jesus' life during that final week. And and I've been trying to point out and bring up what discipleship looks like uh, in this final week. What what is happening to those closest to Jesus? And we, we saw the woman last week at Bethany who showers him, anoints him with oil because she alone, everybody else is missing the picture of what's about to happen, but she gets it. And in her final hours with Jesus, she wants to adore him. She wants to praise him. She wants to prepare him for the sacrifice that he's about to do. And so now we are at the Lord's Supper, the institution of it, the Passover night. Jesus has broken bread with his disciples, and they're, they're having conversations and talking. And then it gets really awkward because Jesus looks to Simon Peter and has this to say to him. Satan has demanded to have you. I have prayed for you. Peter has a bold confession, only the way Peter can. No, 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 I'm not going to mess up. I, I've got, I'm with you. And then this devastating word that what you just said isn't going to happen. You're going to fail. And this is how it's going to happen. But, but the marvel of it is, is that Jesus, not only does he pray, we, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is praying, right? He is constantly going to an isolated pray, place to pray. He teaches us the Lord's Prayer. We know Jesus prays a lot. What's interesting in Scripture is, other than the Lord's Prayer, we don't get a lot of details about what he prays. It just says he prays. Here we get the details. And so as we go through this text, we're going to look and answer just a couple of questions because it's important for us to understand why does Jesus even pray What is causing this need that he needs to pray for his disciples and friends? And what does he pray for them, and specifically Peter? And then finally, my my third point is going to be a bit of the conclusion. Does Jesus pray for you? So let's answer this first question. Why does Jesus pray? Well, in verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Many scholars uh, see here a similarity to Job 1 and 2. If you remember the book of Job, it is the book that teaches us how to suffer. It's the book that teaches us why do bad things happen to good people. Because Job is lifted up as a righteous man. And the beginning of Job is this scene, this heavenly court of Yahweh. And all the, the angels are coming before him, and Satan somehow wanders in, and God and Satan have a conversation, and Satan says that he's been wandering to and fro across the earth, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? 
have you looked and seen how great he is? And Satan says, if, you, if he wasn't so blessed by you, he'd curse you. And so God says, all right, you can have at Job a little bit. And the, this text this presents to us that Satan is actually at work trying to trip up Job, trying to deceive him. And God allows it for a season. God allows this to happen. And so we see Jesus saying that this is at play again. Simon, Satan demanded to have you. Satan asked for you. Now, what's interesting, too, is all of our English translations, they, they kind of mess up some things here. And one of the things they mess up, all Southern people are sad they mess up, and that is they don't get the second person plural. So when Jesus is saying, behold, Satan demanded to have you, it's kind of hard for us to tell, is he talking about just Simon? Is he talking just to him? Or is he talking to the group of disciples? Remember, they're still at the table. So uh, this is the second person plural, and so we should probably read it, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all. Satan is coming for the disciples. He's coming for the whole group that's been following Jesus. Satan is on the attack. Earlier in chapter 22, I know we didn't read it because we couldn't read the whole thing, but in 22 verse 3, it's already been told to us that Satan had entered Judas. He got one. He's coming for the rest. And he wants to, to sift them. And if you, if you know what a sieve is or what sifting is, I mean, you're, you're shaking up things, you're keeping the good, you, the rest is, the bad stuff's going away. And sometimes sifting is actually used positively in the New Testament. But here what, what's trying to be explained by Jesus is sh- Satan desires to shake things up. He wants to rattle the disciples. He wants to test their faith. He can smell and sense their weakness. He can smell and sense they're on the brink of faithlessness. It's no wonder that a decade or so later, when Peter is writing to other saints who are under attack from Satan's devices, that he describes Satan as a roaring lion. If you've ever seen lions hunt, uh, it's pretty impressive. They coordinate together and they pick off the weak ones of a herd. They go after them one-on-one. It's a lot easier, but they, they usually get what they go after. It's rare for a lion not to get a kill. And that is what Jesus is saying to the disciples at large. Satan is a roaring lion seeking after you. He's already taken one of you. He's coming for the rest. So that makes sense about why Jesus is praying. He's praying because his disciples, his brothers, the men he's been traveling with for three years, they're under attack. Being a friend of Jesus makes you an enemy of Satan. I hate to tell you this, but all of us have targets on our back for Satan and his minions because you are aligning yourself with Jesus Christ. One of the great uh, Puritans, Richard Baxter, he was speaking about Satan's attacks against preachers, but he said this, he, this is Satan, bears you the greatest malice who are engaged to do him the greatest mischief. He was especially thinking about when preachers preach the word of God, when they disciple, when they care for people, because ministers are trying to encourage people in faithfulness to Christ. And that's the exact opposite of what Satan wants. 
and it creates mischief in his kingdom, his tiny, puny thing that he thinks is so great. But Christians, that's just as true for you when you are out there being faithful to where God has called you. When you faithfully attend church, when you faithfully pray, when you faithfully love your families, when you are out in the world and have opportunities to present Christ, you are making mischief in the kingdom of darkness, and he's coming for you. That is why Jesus prays for Peter, because Peter, he's going to make a ton of mischief against Satan. He's got to get him. This is his desire. When, uh, when I was growing up and I was in, we didn't, I didn't do Boy Scouts. I did something that my church called Royal Rangers. And, and we had a motto. It was very much like Boy Scouts. But the motto was, be ready. And it had a little thing, be ready for work, play, love, service, obedience to God's commands, something like that. But I've always kind of kept it with me, to be ready for everything, anything that might come up. And one of the things that we, we see here is, is Peter isn't ready. He thinks he is, right? That's, his, that's why he's so bold in verse 33. I mean, he is ready, ride or die. I'm ready to both go to prison and to death, Jesus. I'm not giving up on you. He does, he's not prepared for what is coming after him. How are we supposed to stand against this satanic attack? Well, Romans 8, 33 through 34 told us and tells us how. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus. Jesus is praying and interceding for you to resist the devil. When the devil is coming after you, when a weapon is formed against you, it is Christ who stands in between you and the onslaught. And he does it through interceding for you. But like I said, it, we're not just given the why he prays. We're told what he actually prays for Peter. And that's in verse 32. I have prayed for you. What? I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So b before we look at this content, let's just look at the fact that it's Jesus who prays. He doesn't say, Peter, I need you to pray more because Satan is coming after you. He says, I prayed for you, Peter. He prays for us because Jesus was and is still human and knows and has experienced adversity. He prays because he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Thomas Goodwin, another great Puritan, put it this way, Christ will be sure to ask nothing which his Father will deny, and his Father will not deny anything which he shall ask. The Father does not deny what the Son wants. He is all too eager to give the Son what he has requested. And one of the things that is powerful about this is that Jesus actively is praying for Peter. And R.C. Sproul said, what's the big difference between Judas in verse 3 
and Peter here. It's Jesus saying to Peter, I have prayed for you. That makes all the difference in the world. That is what will get you through trials and heartaches and failures. And that's what's at stake. He prays that Peter's faith will not fail. So here's our problem. Doesn't he fail? Doesn't he? I mean, we saw in verse 33, he says, I'm not going to, I'm ready for prison and death. And what does Jesus say? In verse 34, he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. And of course, we know this happens. And in fact, this is one of those things, I mean, it is testified in all of the Gospels. Peter fails miserably. He denies Jesus three times. The one who is so bold, the one who, when he sees uh, Jesus, he runs to him. When he walks, he sees Jesus coming on the storms of waters, he walks out into the waters. This Peter so quickly will deny his Savior. And so you have, does Christ even believe what he is praying here? It's confusing. We know he is going to fail. Jesus himself is saying, I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And then a verse later he says, but you're going to fail. So what what does failure here look like? What is he talking about? Satan and us are very short-sighted when it comes to faithfulness. We live and move in quick flashes of moments. We're ready to make crazy promises to God. If you know the story of Martin Luther, uh, the whole reason he ends up being a monk is because he's traveling in a storm and he gets completely scared out of his wits. And so he pleads with God and brokers a deal. If you get me through this storm, I'll go be a monk. We make some type of irrational decisions sometimes because we're, we're scared and we're thinking of just a momentary deliverance. I've got a buddy who uh, once went on a camping trip and uh, it was pouring rain. It was a terrible way to, to weekend to go camping, but he was trying to get away to pray because he really wanted to be a great musician. And so he made a deal with God in the completely downpour rain. If God would just help him make a fire, he knows then that he was going to be a great, like world famous musician. My buddy did not make the fire. He is a very good musician though. But, but we do this. We think so short-sightedly when it comes to faithfulness so that we equate an instant of failure, going back to a sin, going back to a sin maybe that we have continued to struggle with, and we despair, and we think we have, we've completely failed. We've shipwrecked our faith. Jesus plays the long game when it comes to faithfulness. He is not short-sighted. What we think of as a momentary thing that could have eternal consequences, Jesus sees the internal play out of your faithfulness. To paraphrase another Puritan, Christians are not kept from falling. They're kept from falling away altogether. And despite Peter's response in verse 33 and Jesus' prophecy and insight of what he's going to do in verse 34, we know that Jesus' prayer for Peter is successful for the same reason we know that he is going to fail and deny Jesus, because Jesus says he's going to do it. Look at this important word here in verse 32. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Then he says, 
and when you have turned again. This isn't conditional. He doesn't say, if you come back to me, Peter, you're going to strengthen your brother. No, he says, when you come back to me, you will strengthen your brethren, your brethren, your brothers. In Hebrews 7, 25, the, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When you are weak, when you have failed for the hundredth time, when you've screwed up for the first time in something, when you are weak, Christ is strong for you. The end of Christ's prayer for Peter is salvation itself. The end of Christ's intercession for all of the elect is salvation. It's not a short game he's playing. He's playing the long haul of discipleship to lead you into eternity, to lead you into the heavenly places where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so the final question we have to ask is, does Jesus pray for us the way he prayed for Simon here? Well, look how tenderly he refers to him. In verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon. So in Luke 5, Jesus asked Peter to be a disciple, and he gives him a new name. He gives him a nickname. From Luke 5 until this moment, he is only ever referred to as Peter, which is a nickname. It's rock. It's, it's his personality. It's his strength. It's his determination. It's a good ver- you know, characteristic that Jesus wants to lift up. But now he switches, and he calls him Simon. Uh, I'm from a family where I've got a nickname. If you go home with me to New York, everyone calls me Flip. That was my nickname. I only knew I was either in a lot of trouble or somebody was going to say something really important to me if they said Philip. Jesus is saying, I have got something really important for you, Peter. So to get your attention, I'm saying Simon. Simon, listen to me. I have prayed for you. Does Jesus know your name to pray for you before God the Father? If he does, then he prays for you because he lives to intercede for you, as the author of Hebrews says. In fact, there is not a Christian in this room who has not had their names on the lips of Jesus Christ before God the Father in heaven. When you have failed, God, Jesus has said, please restore Joe. When you have been through trials and heartache, he has said, God, see Gene. When you have been faithful and service and you are struggling with what is next in life where you don't know what is coming next, Jesus has said, Jonathan, stay the course. He has prayed for each one of you, not in some theoretical world, not before you were born, not after you've gone to glory. He has prayed for you now. He has prayed for you today. He will pray for you tomorrow. He'll pray for you the next day until you go home to glory. And then he will say your name to your face and welcome you home. 
We only persevere in this life because He prays. That's what is intercession for. That is what it is for, is to strengthen us, carry us home to be with Him. One of the great uh, preachers in Scotland was a man named Robert Murray Machaney. And he was taken very young. I mean, he, had, he rocked all of Scotland with his preaching ministry. And he died at age 32. I'm 36. But Machaney was asked about prayer, and he pointed towards Christ's intercession. He, he said this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus prays for each of us, and he is that hero who shows up to deliver us. He is the hero who comes, and so that, as Paul was writing the rest of Romans, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, not heights, depths, not rulers, not things present, not the future, not powers, not darkness, not even Satan who demands you because you follow Jesus Christ, because Jesus prays for you. We will persevere to the end through the prayers of our precious Savior. So as we go out today, go boldly knowing that Christ has prayed for you. When you sin this week, when you sin later this afternoon, take heart because Christ has prayed that it won't be your undoing, that you'll be restored, that you will be continued to grow in holiness and sanctification. Satan wins a billion little skirmishes throughout life. Christ will win the war for your souls because he prayed for you. So let us pray to him and thank him for his intercession. Gracious Lord, thank you that you pray for us. We are often weak. Prayer is one of the things that most people say they would love to grow in, just don't know how. We mumble through it. We, we don't know what to say. But you know what to say. And you say it before God the Father for us. Thank you that when we are weak and we are always weak, you are strong. Thank you that when we don't have words, you have the best words. Thank you that we will persevere because you pray for us. In your precious and holy name, amen. Please stand then and let us sing hymn 689, Be Still My Soul. <laughs>